please take your Bibles and turn with me to the gospel according to Luke as we return to chapter 6. And look once again at the first 11 verses of the gospel according to Luke. If you're looking for that in your New Testament, it begins Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke the evangelist, this traveling partner of the apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament, but it was Luke actually who wrote the most words in the New Testament between Luke and Acts. And he has much to say about Jesus and about the church, including what we learn here about these Sabbath events and the controversies that took place on them here in verses one through 11, as we review the first part, verses one through five, and then look at the second event in verses six through 11 this morning. Luke chapter six, beginning in verse one, talking about Jesus, it says this. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Almost everyone in our world has an idea about Jesus. Our world, not necessarily referring to everyone in the entire planet, but perhaps the world that we live in, our sphere, our region, our country, our culture, people know the name Jesus, but they all have their opinions about him. They like certain things about Jesus. Sometimes those things are things from the Bible. There are things about Jesus providing food for people in need. Jesus having compassion upon people who are in trouble. Jesus going to the outcasts and the rejected people among society. People, Jesus telling the people who are in power and who are corrupt that they're acting in ways that they shouldn't and really coming and not just leaving things the way that they were, going against the kind of people that of course everyone should be against. People have ideas of Jesus as well that come from their own invention. Jesus is sort of set forth very often as the ideal moral standard. He's the kind of person where he's sort of moldable to fit whatever you want him to be in the moral sense. Basically, when you ask the question, what would Jesus do, which grew so popular about three decades ago with bracelets to boot, what would Jesus do essentially turns into what would I do? And let me put Jesus' rubber stamp of approval upon my standard of behavior. 
We insert into the doctrines and the practice of Jesus whatever we can't readily find there. And we remove the kinds of things that we either don't want to be there or just neglect to add them in the first place and never even make sure that we have a comprehensive view of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is fine as long as he's only doing or saying the things that we like or as long as we can kind of make him be the kind of person that we want him to be. Now, those of us who know a little bit more about Jesus than that and know what the Bible says about him in more detail understand that he is the last person in the world who should be treated with such disrespect. He's the last person who should be made to fit what we think is right. The last person who should be shaped and formed according to our own desires. And yet that's exactly what people do. They take Jesus and they just turn him into a Messiah after their own likeness. Jesus, however, is not going to have that. Jesus will not simply be accepted for what you want him to be. Jesus is who he is. And sometimes he does things that we like, but other times he does things that we don't like. And other times still, he goes out of his way to make sure to force the issue, to make sure that people know what he is really like, even when he has the chance to avoid doing that even when he could just go along in peace and not make a big deal out of something that people were doing wrong, even when he could just sort of let people keep teaching error, he decides that he's going to force things. He's going to expose what is wrong. He's going to deal with people who hold false teaching over others, such as the Pharisees. He's going to make sure that he gets right down to the heart of the issue. And so Jesus here in this passage is presented as one who ultimately was disliked by people when he forced them to grapple with who he really was. It's a passage that starts out somewhat innocuously. Jesus is going through some grain fields. He's picking, his disciples are picking the heads of grain. They're eating them. This is not a big problem. In fact, biblically, it's not even really a problem at all to just do that and to eat on the Sabbath. It wasn't a problem to eat the grain from the neighbor's grain fields. This was prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy. You could do this. It belonged to anyone who happened to be hungry and passing through. So what they were doing wasn't a problem, but the Pharisees made an issue out of it. The Pharisees said, you're doing something wrong. And when we looked at this last week, we Uh, we looked at Jesus' response to this, which didn't just focus on the fact that it actually was okay to be eating the heads of grain in some regard, but he actually showed the Pharisees that there are more important things than mere Sabbath keeping or religious rituals, some of the external kinds of things which were in fact in the law, but were not the weightier matters, in this case being providing for the physical needs of someone to be able to actually eat when they're hungry. And so he says, David did this when he was hungry in the Old Testament. David went into the temple, he took the bread. No one was supposed to eat the bread except for this, but he was hungry and God was okay with that. He says it wasn't lawful for anybody but the priest to eat, but he ate it and he gave it to his companions. And he says, Pharisees, you've missed the point of this commandment. The Sabbath is not supposed to be something where you hold this over people's head. It's supposed to be a day of rest. It's supposed to be for their benefit. And if you hold this kind of thing over them where they can't even eat the grain on the Sabbath, you've missed the whole point. That's not why God gave the law. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He raises the stakes and he continues to do this throughout this passage. But he does this in verse five where he doesn't just say the Bible allows for this kind of thing. 
he actually then says something totally unnecessary and claims to be, verse five, the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was this Israelite practice of keeping a rest day on the seventh day of the week, on Saturday in our calendar. And he, he says, yeah, this was actually something that was required by the law, but I am greater than this. He says in a parallel passage, I'm greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. And he says he's greater even than the Sabbath day. A stunning and bold claim, but one that is true. And Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand not only that they are getting the law wrong, but that the whole point of all of this is underneath something greater, which is Jesus Christ himself. And we considered last week that you can do all the moral principles that you want. You can understand the truth of God, even all the commandments of God and understand them rightly according to the Bible. But if you come to Jesus and don't understand that he is the Lord of all of those things, then you've missed the point of all of it. The whole point is to point to him and all of the things of the commandments that are given in scripture are subservient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Any moral person, any good person who yet rejects Jesus has missed the whole point of doing those moral things that come from the Bible, the entire point. Jesus is not just something that comes alongside the Sabbath or alongside God's commandments. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is in charge, he is the whole point. Failure to respect and honor him and humble yourself before him as Lord means you've missed the whole point of all the law of all the Bible. And so Jesus raises those stakes and says, there is no one like me and you need to believe in me. Well, the Pharisees had not bought in and they were still against him. And in fact, they come against him even more in this next Sabbath event. And this is what we're looking at this morning. We'll call this uh, Sabbath unrest part two, the second half of Sabbath unrest where Jesus provokes the Pharisees' anger. He provokes the Pharisees' anger. There has been uh, disagreement and conflict brewing and building over the past few events. Jesus has said in chapter five and uh, verse 21, the Pharisees are reasoning saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus challenges their thinking and he says, I, forgive, I can forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on and he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And then he doesn't fast like they do. And then he's eating grain on the Sabbath and his disciples are doing that. And he doesn't stop them. Well, now we get in these six verses, the culmination of that conflict that really just drives the Pharisees off the edge. And they are going to now be irreversibly opposed and hostile and angry toward him and try to get rid of him after what takes place on this Sabbath day. So we show up at the synagogue on the Sabbath and we begin with their search for an accusation. They are searching for an accusation against Jesus. On another Sabbath, it says in verse six, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and there was a man whose right hand was withered. There is a man who just happens to be there, although he uh, doesn't just happen to be there. He, of course, is there in the sovereignty of God. He's there because there are many people who were around Jesus in that time who had these things. And he may have even come there specifically because he knew that Jesus had a reputation for healing and he wanted to be healed. We don't get an indication that he asked for this. He has to be told to come forward, but we know that he is there and this is going to provide Jesus with an opportunity for an object lesson that's making a point that he really wants to make Make to the Pharisees. So he enters the synagogue, which was his practice. He's there on the Sabbath day, a different Sabbath than before. And he is teaching 
the people. Now, this man has a uh, withered right hand. This would functionally be a big problem for most people. Most of you, uh, for you, the, the right hand is more important than the left. If you're a right hand dominant, of course, this is the case. And if you've ever had a cast or a splint on your right hand, your finger, your arm, you understand how difficult this makes life. Even simple things like trying to eat, trying to tie your shoe, whatever it might be, everything just gets thrown off and you, you know how difficult life can be. And not only that, but there would have been some potential societal impact as well. Your right hand being the important one. If your right hand is withered, people may have viewed you as cursed by God. You would have had a social stigma. So here is a man who is physically disabled and probably at least gets some negative looks from people, if not worse. And here he is in the synagogue. Now, at the same time as this man is here, there is also another group, the scribes and the Pharisees. And we have met them before on a number of occasions. They have been interacting with Jesus in a growing way. They are the teachers of the law in Israel. They are the ones who were the popular people, not so much because everybody did everything like them, but they were well-recognized as teachers. They were recognized as those who knew their Bible, who knew what they were supposed to be doing and were the religious authorities that people should follow after if they really wanted to be holy. And of course, they put themselves up at this, as this as well. They were very zealous for the law. They were concerned about doing what was right. They wanted to uphold the traditions of Moses. They were so strong in doing that that they would in fact add different instructions and requirements and spell out the specific details that needed to be followed in order to make sure that people would do what God had actually said and not mistake that or not mess up in the process. These people are here watching something closely and it isn't themselves. And it isn't the people, and it isn't the religious practice of the people, but they're watching Jesus. They are keeping an eye on him. They are observing him carefully. Now, no doubt, there are a lot of people here watching Jesus, including maybe the man with the withered hand. Maybe they're watching Jesus very closely. They have their eyes on him. He's teaching. They're paying attention to him. Maybe just like you're paying attention right now, your eyes are looking in a certain place. They were doing this with Jesus, but the Pharisees, of course, are not just watching him to be impressed by him or to learn from him or anything like that. They are watching with a completely opposite motivation. They want to accuse him of something. Now, what it says is they're watching him to see if he does something, which is to heal on the Sabbath, watching him to see if he healed on the Sabbath. Now, if you didn't know anything about the Pharisees and if you didn't know anything about Jesus except that he could heal, then you might look at this and say, well, that sounds like a really good thing. Let's go see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath and heal people. But to them, this would be a bad thing. This is a really bad thing. Um, whether good or bad, it wasn't a long shot to think that he might do it because Jesus not only had sort of a, a previous disregard for the Sabbath in their view in the previous passage, but he was also willing and able to heal people. In fact, this may not have even been the first time that he had healed on the Sabbath, even in their presence. But uh, by this point, they'd grown very hostile to him and they are watching to get some kind of a record of him doing this. And so rather than watching him with an interested or a humble eye, they have their eye upon him in a critical way. And it's focused on one thing. Is he going to do something we can catch him in? And they said, or Luke tells us this, they were watching so that they might find reason to accuse him, reason to accuse him. 
Now, their response to the previous incident about the grain fields and Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath and so on was never really resolved. Jesus just spoke and we don't get their response to it. But what this tells us is they didn't buy his message at all. He had not convinced them to be less hostile toward him. If anything, they are ratcheting it up. They aren't following him the way that other people were as disciples or as people in need or open listeners, maybe to consider Jesus. They are after him and they're out to get him. They're trying to catch him in doing something wrong. And there are all kinds of reasons that they might do this. They are trying to maintain their power in the country. Uh, They don't like what his teaching contradicting theirs says about them. And they don't like his growing favor among the people. And then of course, there's good old fashioned pride when someone shows you that you're wrong, that he doesn't like, or that they are not going to like to deal with. So what's going to happen? They're trying to catch him in something What will Jesus do? And we find next in verses eight through 10 that as they watch him for grounds of accusation, he then exposes something. Namely, he exposes their heart of unbelief. He exposes their heart of unbelief. Now, the first thing to note here is that Jesus knows what the other people don't about the scribes and the Pharisees. He, according to verse eight, knows what they are thinking. He is aware of what they're thinking. He is aware of their bad motives. But even more fundamentally than that, this is an amazing statement. Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, Luke is not telling us here, you know, Jesus knows what Pharisees are like. You know, he surely they're here and they're up to no good. And Jesus is just making an educated guess about what they're doing. That's not what he's saying. He actually says he knows their thoughts. He is a mind reader and not in some sort of uh, some sort of like a, a just special ability that takes place among maybe humans in stories that we tell. But he actually knows the thoughts, not only of the Pharisees, but also all the other people there and also everyone really who has ever actually lived because he is omniscient. In fact, in Revelation chapter two, he refers to himself as he who searches the hearts. Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He knows the motives of our hearts and he knows what we're thinking. And he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. This is the second time that Luke tells us that Jesus knows what people are thinking and is aware of what they're thinking. This is no ordinary person. This is no psychic. Rather, this is someone who has the power that belongs only to deity. Jesus, the God-man, knows what these people are thinking. Now, what does he know specifically about their thoughts? Well, he knows several things that are in their mind. One of these is that they know that he heals people. They are aware of his record of actually healing people. And it's an amazing thing to think about the hard heartedness behind looking at this saying, we are going to try to catch him healing someone. As if you can't see what's right in front of them. They can't detect that they're actually trying to get onto someone who is doing supernatural miracles and think that they're the good guys. They know that he heals people. They know that he doesn't view the Sabbath in the exact way as they do. This is one of the things that they would have been thinking. Uh, And he's also aware, not only that they are against him and out to get him, but that that's why they are in the synagogue in the first place. They're watching him to see if he heals on the Sabbath. Jesus is going to make a choice. What he could do here is this. 
he's here on the Sabbath, he's teaching, all these people are here and you know, ministry's going pretty good, right? The Pharisees and scribes, you know, they're coming after him, but they're just following him and they're trying to catch him. And what happens if they catch me? You know, what happens if they, if they really get mad at what I'm doing? Am I going to be prevented from being able to minister in Galilee anymore? Are they gonna follow me around and try to arrest me or, put, or do something with me? What are they gonna do to me? There could have been these concerns in Jesus' mind. And so he had the option to just keep the peace and move on. Yeah, I know what they're thinking. I know what's in their head. I know they're out to get me. And I know what's going to provoke that and have a bad reaction. So maybe this time I'll just hold back on the healing and I'll just keep teaching so that I can continue to do what I'm doing. Maybe he could even heal, but not make such a big deal about it. You know, leave it to them to create the conflict. But Jesus has another agenda. And it's important for him to do something. Jesus is not just content to positively teach the truths that he is teaching. He's not just content to heal this man and to let the chips fall where they may, but he wants to expose who the Pharisees are. He wants to show that they are in opposition to scripture in the way that they are treating him. He wants to show that they are the ones, not him who are going against God that these are the ones who actually, despite all their appearances, are actually the unbelieving people. These are the ones with hard hearts. And he wants to show all of this to the people and expose the Pharisees and the scribes for all to see. So he calls the man forward and he says to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. At this point, no healing has happened. And so he looks to the Pharisees and he gives them a challenge. He challenges them to answer in verse nine. And he says this, he raises a question. I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? Now, a little bit of background to this question that he asked them. Uh, one commentator helps us here with a little bit of a background view of the Pharisees' uh, understanding and teaching about the Sabbath. They would allow for certain needs that were urgent to be met on the Sabbath, things that were life-threatening or urgent medical needs. For example, um, there, was, there was a specific instruction given that you could kill a burglar on the Sabbath to save someone's life. Now, if you're thinking about this properly, you know that killing a burglar probably takes a little more work than picking out some grain to eat as you pass through a grain field, but they were okay with it. They had no problem with that. They also allowed for delivering a child on the Sabbath day. You can imagine telling a pregnant mother, no, you have to wait until tomorrow for that baby to come or you're on your own. They understood that there are reasonable things like this. They even uh, allowed for the performance of circumcision, which had to take place under Jewish law on the eighth day after the boy was born. And John chapter seven, verse 23 acknowledges this. In fact, Jesus uses this to show their hypocrisy when they object there to healing on the Sabbath. Uh, there were also less urgent needs that could be met. And this is why, for example, in Luke 13, 14, um, the synagogue official says, hey, there's six other days of the week. Come back and get healed on one of those. There's, there are kind of exceptions to the rule that even the Pharisees acknowledged. But basically it was, is this an actual medical emergency um, or is this necessary to keep another requirement in God's law that had to fall on a certain day that must be done? 
All of which is to say the Pharisees understood and even taught and prescribed certain exceptions to this where the principle was, we are going to do good to someone rather than to do harm. We are going to save a life on this day rather than just passively standing by while it is destroyed. So Jesus says, look, this issue of doing good or of saving a life on the Sabbath, is it, and he raises the idea from the preceding section, is it, what's the word? Lawful. Is it lawful? He's the one that brings this back up. They accused him in the previous section of doing what was not lawful. And he now turns the question around on them and says, uh, you're here to accuse me, but what's really going on? Are you allowing for what you have already said is lawful? Is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to save a life? And is it not unlawful to destroy a life and unlawful to do harm on the Sabbath and just to let that take place? So this man has a need on a Sabbath. This man needs to be healed. His right hand is withered. Who's standing in the way of doing what's lawful now? This is what you're doing. You Pharisees are actually in the wrong. Would it be wrong to heal a man in this situation? Or actually, would it be wrong not to if you have the ability such as Jesus had? So he throws the question out to them and he shows them, look, you're the ones thinking wrongly about this, not me. And so then in verse 10, we see him take action. He heals the man's hand. Now more on that in a moment, but Look at what he does before he heals him. It says, after looking around at them all, after looking around at them all, Jesus gives them a chance to answer. He says, hey, Pharisees, what do you think? Let's reevaluate this situation. Let's think about what's really going on here. Uh, do you wanna reconsider this in light of the, the uh, principle of lawfulness that I'm talking about? And what do the Pharisees say? What do they say? Nothing, absolutely nothing. They refuse to answer. Why do they refuse to answer? Because they can't answer. Well, they have the ability. They could technically say one answer or another, but they don't have the ability to do this and be consistent. They have to maintain their position. They have to maintain this. They, they can't say that it's lawful because what happens if they say it's lawful? Well, then they're saying, well, yeah, Jesus, you're allowed to do this. But what happens if they say it's not lawful? Then they contradict their own position. Jesus has them stuck in a corner. Jesus has exposed that they are not right one way or another, and they don't like either outcome. So what do they do? They keep quiet. They stay silent. And here is the root of the issue. What does it say? In verse five, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's in charge, he's special, he's the unique one. Here, the Pharisees do not want to grapple with that reality that Jesus is right, that he is the one who has this authority to heal, to teach the one who has authority over the truth, and they don't. They are not the ones in charge. He is in charge of them and they don't want to admit it. He's right and they don't want to admit it because this means they have to submit to him and humble themselves and change what they think about the truth. They have to change their religious views about the moral standard, but also about who Jesus is. And they don't want to do that. They know the answer to the question, is it lawful? Yes, of course it is. They themselves taught that. They taught the exceptions. 
This was just in that category, but they didn't like it because Jesus was doing it. And if Jesus did it, that showed that he was in charge and they were not. And this gives us a very important point that you need to think and consider, which is that when people don't want Jesus to have authority over them, they will do anything, anything to avoid acknowledging the truth about who he is. They will do anything to get out of that. They can be backed into the tightest of tight corners. They can be dead to rights in their logical reasoning. They can be absolutely nailed biblically and they will still sit there in silence rather than admit what they themselves have even said before is true, rather than admit who Jesus is and that he is the right one and that he is the one to worship. These guys could not grant that Jesus had a point because that would mean they would have to acknowledge that he's the Messiah. You may not want Jesus to be Lord over you and you get backed into a corner and you say, well, this has to be true and Jesus taught the truth and he is who he says he was. But at the end of the day, you say, you know, but basically functionally, I'm just gonna be silent. I'm not gonna acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I'm not gonna say that he's not Lord. I'm not gonna say that he's wrong, but I'm also not going to follow him because that's going to demand things from me that I don't want to be demanded. That's gonna demand the kind of life from me that I don't wanna live. That's gonna demand me give up things in my life that I know are sinful, that I know at some point I'm gonna to have to put aside because I have to follow Jesus. I don't wanna do that. And so, so to speak, you stay quiet. You don't confess him as Lord. You don't admit that he's right. You just move on with your life and you go somewhere and you just kind of keep doing your thing. Or it could be that you grow hostile toward him, which is what they end up doing. They are going to, as we'll see later on in the passage, they're gonna to try to get rid of him. Now, some people today um, can have the same kind of hostility toward Jesus, but they don't have to get rid of him because he, in one sense, he isn't here in the physical sense. He's not here on earth forcing the issue with them. But nonetheless, they hate him just as much when the issues are brought to bear and when his lordship is brought to bear. So people run away or they try to just get Jesus to leave them alone, but they never will actually come out and acknowledge what they absolutely know if they're logical about it to be the truth. Now they are silent, but we have a divine commentary on this situation. And that is in the parallel passage in Mark chapter three, where the same story is told, but Mark tells us what was going on on both sides, in Jesus' heart and in the heart of the Pharisees. And Jesus, it says about him in Mark 3, verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. This tells us that there is an appropriate place to be angry toward unbelief to be angry toward people who do not reject or do not accept God's word. Now, the way that we express that anger must be very, very careful, must be very controlled. We, are learn we learn in James 1, for example, that the anger of man does not, does not produce the righteousness of God. We read in Ephesians 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin, do not sin. We have to be careful the way that we use anger. We need to be slow to anger. It needs to be for righteous purposes. But here are people who are distorting the truth of God 
And if they are holding others under their sway and keeping them out of the kingdom of God, how could you not be angry at that if you understand the stakes? Jesus was angry at them. He was grieved at what they were doing and at what was going on on the inside of them. He was both angry at them and sad at the same time. This was grievous to him. And Mark 3, 5 tells us what he was grieved at, which is their unbelief, their unbelief. And this really is the heart of the issue. Uh, It isn't that they didn't know what to say. It isn't that they didn't know that what Jesus was saying is true. It It isn't that they didn't know that he healed. They just would not believe it. They wouldn't believe it. They realized there are two sides of the issue. There's what they had always practiced, always taught, always believed, their public positions in front of people, their entire reputation, their entire career was over here. And then there was what Jesus said and did and taught and practiced. And they knew that the two things were not compatible. They knew it. They knew they couldn't both be right. And now they had a choice. Do we admit that Jesus is right or do we double down on our own views? So they made a choice. We are not going to admit that Jesus is right. And so they can't refute him, but the condition of their hearts won't let them agree with him. And so here again, it is an issue about Jesus. It isn't that he's wrong, but that doesn't stop them from unbelief. Um, At the end of the day, when a person has a sinful heart that wants to stay in that, then truth is ultimately irrelevant to what they believe. It's just completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant. Now we need to remember that God is able to overcome such a sinful heart. And if you're a Christian here, it's because that's exactly what has happened because God has been merciful and taken our heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. He's enabled us to believe the truth and he's been so gracious to us. This is why we preach the gospel. We don't say, well, that person keeps rejecting the truth. We are never going to just talk to them again about anything. We're just gonna leave them to themselves or that person is very, very sinful and they haven't heard the gospel, but surely they're so sinful that they wouldn't believe it. We don't do that. The gospel can change a heart. God can change a heart. And this is why the Bible uses terms like beg and persuade to talk about the way that we appeal to people. But if there's a heart that remains in unbelief, it's gonna jump through any hoops it has to jump through to maintain unbelief toward God and Christ. And it doesn't matter how perfectly logical someone's reason is, doesn't matter how rational it is, doesn't matter how true it is. The evil unbelieving heart will reject anything, no matter how sound. And so if we may attempt for a minute to learn from this for our own practice and application, we first of all find that Jesus um, does show and tries to put them in a corner concerning their response to him. He, he tries to reason and to show what is actually true. He gives this kind, of, um, this kind of argument that's not just saying, well, hey, I'm Jesus, believe in me, but he tries to show them where they're wrong and walks through that biblically. And he actually succeeds in making his argument. So he gives us an example that this is valid and something that we can do and something that we can learn from him and model ourselves after. Um, but also we need to note that Jesus putting them in a corner, even Jesus himself doing this perfectly, doesn't mean that they're going to believe him. It doesn't mean that he's going to persuade them because of the deceitfulness and the stubbornness of the heart of unbelief. Then I do wanna issue a warning that you look to yourself and say, is my heart like this with regard to Jesus? Am I someone 
who hears all of this stuff about Jesus. I can't refute it. The Bible is clear. His teaching is true. He is who he says he is. I have no ground to stand on, but I just don't want to follow him. I just don't want to believe him. I don't like what that would mean. I don't want to be one of those Jesus followers. I don't want to be one of those weird people. I don't want to be somebody who has to do what he says when I feel like doing something else. I don't like the kind of life that he says to live. I just don't want to follow him. He may be, he may be right, but I just don't want to follow him. And you let the question just exit your mind and you just go on about your business. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't follow after that in this heart of unbelief. One more thing here to note about their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Their hard-heartedness is consistent. It is consistent. They're unbelieving toward Jesus because of the hardness of their heart, but they also have hard hearts toward people. Their, Their opposition toward Jesus, it overlaps in itself with an overarching lack of compassion toward people. They don't care about people because their heart is the same kind of heart that doesn't love God. They ultimately only care about themselves. And a heart that truly loves God and loves Christ and will submit to him is a heart that understands the compassion that we've been shown by Christ and then will pour out with compassion toward other people. Jesus heals this man because he thinks in line with the truth but they didn't care about this man at all. This is built into this. They would rather this man not get healed or all they care about if Jesus does heal him is catching Jesus. They don't think what a wonderful thing it is that this man has had his hand restored. All they're concerned about is themselves. That's all they're worried about. And so it is that a person with an unbelieving heart is going to lack compassion for other people in particular, when, when their unbelief is of the strain of the Pharisees who think they're better than everyone. So Jesus puts this question before them and they plead the fifth. We're not gonna answer. We're not telling you anything, Jesus, we're silent. But he isn't just gonna let them sit with this. What does he do? He continues with his healing plan. And so he says to the man, after looking around at them all, stretch out your hand and lo and behold, This man who could not stretch out his hand before was restored in his right hand, in its ability and in its proper position. Jesus here does nothing wrong. He heals this man. He does this glorious thing that only he can do. And as we've talked about before going through Luke, he is the only one ultimately who has this power over nature. We all suffer the effects of the fall and the curse, sickness, illness, and even death. Only Jesus has power over those. And because of his resurrection, he has power over all things. He is the God man who has this power in and of himself and he's proved it by his resurrection from the dead. But here he heals this man and shows his mercy and his ability all in one action. He's done nothing wrong, but that doesn't mean that he's gonna get away with it. These Pharisees are still gonna hold this against him. And he knows that they're going to do this, but that doesn't stop him from acting anyway. In fact, it's not just that he's willing to go against what they want. It's not just that he's not gonna let someone else tell him what to do, but he has provoked the fight. He did not have to call them out. He could have just healed, but he took the fight to the Pharisees and now it's game on because there's going to be a fallout from this action as the Pharisees begin conspiring to destroy him. They begin conspiring to destroy him. Verse 11 says that they themselves were filled 
with rage. You know what it's like to be this angry, I'm sure. We wouldn't necessarily all be proud of being so angry, but you know what it's like to be really, really angry at something. They are angry that Jesus did what he just did. They're angry about a lot of things that are causing this. They're angry about the perceived Sabbath defiance. They're angry uh, that Jesus doesn't care about their standards. They're certainly angry that Jesus publicly shoves this in their face and humiliates them. And they're angry that he's exposing them consistently and actively. They think that they're supposed to be the teachers. And here along comes this upstart from Galilee. Who does he think he is? Who is now showing everyone how wrong the Pharisees are. And again, they have the opportunity to humble themselves, but they don't do it. They could have submitted themselves in truth. They could have said, man, we've got this wrong. But instead they get angry at Jesus. And so the culmination comes. You can't say you forgive sins. You can't eat with tax collectors and sinners. You can't just not fast like we do. You can't eat grain on the Sabbath. And you definitely can't heal on the Sabbath and basically throw out the whole institution. And you definitely also cannot expose us. That's what they like least of all. And so it says here that they were filled with rage and they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. They discussed together what they might do to Jesus. We read in Mark chapter three, verse six, it wasn't just them. They began conspiring also with the Herodians against him. They are bringing other people into the picture. Um, in Matthew chapter 12, we, we read Matthew's commentary on this. And uh, in response to this, it says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. The stakes have now been raised and these are going to come against him. This, of course, will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. This is going to lead to Jesus being attacked, being punished, for something that he has never done wrong. And of course he knows this, he knows this. He came into the world and he didn't come into the world just to let everybody get along and to do a few nice things and even just to do things for people, but he came also to expose hearts of unbelief and to draw a dividing line between people who will follow Jesus and who will not. And he is worthy of this. If Christianity sounds divisive, before you say that, look and see what is the standard of division. And the standard of division is that there is one who is worthy of being worshiped and followed by all. And if you will not do that, you're the one starting the fight. You're the Pharisees. You're the ones who are saying, he may be all of these things, but we just wanna live our lives. We may be creatures. We may be under his rule, but we don't wanna live like that. We may not be in line with what the Bible actually says is true, but we just wanna be allowed to continue to do our thing what the Pharisees thought, but it's what so many people think today. They don't have to conspire to destroy Jesus because Jesus isn't getting in their business directly in that way, but they may conspire to destroy the people who dare have the audacity to come and to tell Jesus' message to them. They may conspire against the institution of the church, which sets forth a standard of what is true. They may conspire against anyone who tries to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Psalm 2 describes it, saying that um, the nations talk about the Lord and his Christ, his Messiah, as if they've put shackles on them. 
Let's break them off, they say. Let's get rid of this oppressive God, this oppressive Christ. No, no, he's not oppressive. He is quite good to us. He's very kind. He's very compassionate. He's very gracious, but he's also in charge. And we have to make the decision of whether we want to incur the wrath of a God who will meet our every need if we humble ourselves, or are we willing to subject ourselves rightly to the Lord of the universe? Are we going to stand on our own self-righteousness and try to be impressive in the sight of people? Or are we willing to bow down and say, we need the compassion that comes from another person to forgive us of our sins? What's the choice going to be? The Pharisees made the wrong one, but it doesn't have to be that way for you or for anyone else. So I hope that you will follow him if you have not, that you'll be encouraged to continue to love and to grow in him if you have, and to make sure that other people know who he is so that they too can come to him for the kind of grace and forgiveness that we all need. Let's join in prayer together as we close. God, we thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ and the truth about him here. Thank you that uh, you have overcome our objections to the truth through the gospel of Christ and that we through no merit of our own belong to him. Father, this is not a point of pride for us, but only a certain kind of boasting that we boast in what we have not done, that we give you credit and we glory in the grace that you've shown us and in Christ, so that as the scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what a great Lord he is and a great God that we serve. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us and to show us the way. And we pray this in his name, amen.